We're going to be going on the third part of this series on faith issues. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the sermon entitled The Anti-Faith Killer. We looked at last week the anti-faith, the great, the big anti-faith that is in the Word of God, that God warns us about. And this morning, we will be examining how to relate to that faith killer that we explored last week. I'm going to ask that you have your Bibles ready because we're going to be going through a lot of scripture this morning. If that's okay with you, let's pray. Father, I rejoice to be able to share with my brothers and sisters things that have enabled me to experience your grace, your power, your genuine inner transformation in my life. Father, I ask that your spirit would teach us, open our eyes, grant me simplicity of expression, Father, and that through the study of your word and the illustrations, we can better understand how the just, the righteous lives by faith. How can we have that experience even today? In the name of Jesus, our righteousness, in his name, amen, Lord. So we began to look last week, and I want to ask that you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 is a form of review. I want us to look at Luke chapter 7. And we're going to look at verse 2. This is a way of reviewing what we've covered so far so that some concepts of the previous sermons are fresh in our minds so that we can identify and understand better today's message. Starting in verse 2, speaks about a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him and was sick, about to die. And when the centurion hears about Jesus, he sends some of the Jewish elders asking Jesus to come and save the life of his slave. In verse 4, this is the key part. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him or begged him by saying, He is worthy. He is deserving. He has merit. He is worthy for you to grant this because he has done two things. And what are those two things, church? He has built a synagogue for us and he loves our nation because of those two things jesus and because of those two things you ought to go and heal his servant he is worthy he is a pagan we know he is goy but you should do this because of these two things that had caused him to now be worthy verse 6 says now when he was not far from the house the centurion sent friends saying to him lord do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy. He is not worthy of two things. What are the two things the centurion confesses he is not worthy of? He is not worthy for Jesus to come to his house, and he is not worthy to go to him. I am not worthy for you to come to me, but it's not that I'm going to defer and be humble and come to you signifying that you're great. I'm not even worthy to do that. The Jewish leaders come to Jesus with two reasons why he is worthy. The centurion says, there are two reasons why I am not worthy. I am not worthy for you to come to me. I am not worthy to go to you. Forget that I built the synagogue. Forget that I love the Jewish nation. I am just not worthy. But say the word and my servant shall be healed. Jesus turns around and in verse 9, when he saw this, when he heard this, Jesus marveled at the centurion Turn to the Israelite nation, to the Jewish leaders and even his disciples and the crowd that was following him and says to them, not even where? Have I found what? Such great faith. What prevented Israel from having such great faith in God, in Jesus, was that they had turned their religion experience into an economic basis of worthiness and merit. We deserve God's blessings because we do this. We deserve God's blessings. God owes us, in other words. And that's how the Jewish leaders approached Jesus about this centurion. But yet this centurion, guided by the Holy Spirit, could recognize, I am no more deserving of anything God gives to me because I built this synagogue and because I love the, the Jewish nation. I actually don't deserve anything. But Jesus doesn't call that faith. Self-deprecation, self, oh, I'm unworthy, oh, I'm horrible. That's not faith either. Though he did not feel worthy, he still asked. That's faith. Faith is not simply saying, oh, I'm not worthy, so I'm not going to do anything. Faith is saying, though I come with no merits on my own, 
I do believe someone is worthy here. And the book of Revelation continually repeats this throughout the book of Revelation. Who is the only worthy one found in the book of Revelation? Jesus. So the centurion recognizes, I am not as good as these people think I am. But I'm beginning to sense and recognize from what I've heard from you, Jesus, that if there's one human being that is worthy, that has merit, is you. So because of who you are, though I recognize I am not worthy, I still feel compelled and confident to ask with the confidence that if you say the word, my servant will be healed. Not based on my merits, my worthiness, but based on yours. That's faith. Are we on the same page so far? So the great anti-faith is not doubt. It's actually merit. Merit kills faith. And Christians, no one in the secular world is at risk of approaching God with merit. This is a peculiar disease that is manifested only within God's people. Jesus would not have said these words to the Romans. He would not have said these words to the Greeks. He could look at Israel. He said, I have not found this kind of faith in Israel. He's astounded. (laughs) Because if there was one people on earth that should have recognized who is worthy and who is not, should have been God's people. So this stands as a very tangible admonition for us, God's people, that maybe, just maybe, I may find myself functioning, trying to be a Christian and relying on whether I am worthy or not. And this is a very subtle, uh, imperceptible way of living that dominated the Jewish landscape. Even the disciples of Jesus thought like this. So it's not something that we're like, oh, because I understand it, now therefore I won't live that way. There are many people that know that we shouldn't yell, but (laughs) we yell. So for us, this is an invitation to begin to evaluate my spiritual experience, my motives. Where does all of the desires for spiritual disciplines and devotions come from? Is it in an attempt to be worthy? Or is it an act of faith recognizing that I can ask with confidence, not based on what I do, but based on who God is? That's a big difference. I'm going to need a volunteer. And I guess it's going to be a little bit better than watching it on PowerPoint. So I'm going to ask my brother John Duman if he can come up again. Now we're going to go through a little illustration, right? And just answer the question. Okay, there's no trick questions. So let's pretend there's a good friend that you have, right? And you converse and you chat and you decide, hey, John, what are you doing this week? You want to meet me someplace that you guys like to go eat? And you guys are having a nice time chatting, eating, fellowshipping. And of course, the kind of awkward moment comes when the waitress comes and looks at, and your friend, I got it. I got it, bro. All right. Don't worry about it. This is on me. I invited you. This is on me. So how do you feel? Awkward. Awkward. All right. That's good. Two days later, he calls you up again and says, hey, man, Olive Garden. It's good, man. It's good stuff. It's got a brand new type of eggplant, whatever. Bro, I want to taste it, but I don't want to bubble myself, so I thought of you. Come on out. You guys are there, Olive Garden, chowing down on some good eggplant and whatever else, and yada, yada. The waitress comes again. Now, this is not like the Taco Bell thing. This is Olive Garden, right? And the waitress comes again, and, and he jumps in. No, no, no. I got it. I got it, bro. Listen, I, I talked to you about this eggplant thing. It's on me. How do you feel? That I would have to pay for it. All right. But he refuses. says, no, bro. Listen, I invited you, okay? This is on me. Next Wednesday, he calls you up and says, hey, there's a new restaurant that opened up. I want to check it out. They have some really good dishes there, and I think you and I will like it. Come on out. How do you feel about that invitation? That I'm going to get fat if I keep eating. (laughs) (laughs) He's a good friend. (laughs) It's all salads. (laughs) It's an all salad restaurant. And of course, the waitress comes, a waiter comes, and, and he says, I got this, man. I got this. And he plugs down again and pays for your meal. How do you feel now? Very unworthy. 
<laughs> you guys say your goodbyes. The next day, he shows up at your house with three bags of groceries. He says, bro, listen, I had some extra coupons at the house, and I went shopping. And look, here. Here. What are you doing tomorrow, by the way? Because there's another restaurant that I want to take you out. <laughs> and you guys go out, and the same thing happens. But this time, you're trying to get your wallet out. And he's like, no, 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 bro. Listen, I invited you, bro. I got you. Okay? This is on me. Now, this time, some mutual friends walk into the restaurant. And he looks at you and says, hey, come over here. John has something to tell you. Tell him who paid for this meal. How do you feel? And oh, by the way, tell him about the last week's meals too. Yeah, yeah. How do you feel now? Put on the spot and like I'm a freeloader. So the next day he shows up at your house with more groceries. And then you knock on your neighbor's doors. See that food over there? I'd pay for that. Right, John? That food, right? I got it for you. Because you're my friend. Now, if you were me, if I were you, because he is going to invite you again, I would try to get ahead of my friend. So I'm putting myself in your mind. And now, John, you're going to tell this friend of yours when he says, hey, we're going to go visit this restaurant, man. I would really love for you to try this new dish. You're going to get ahead and say, you know what? I'm going to go with you, but you know what? I'm going to pay for it. Uh, is that okay with you? And he says, oh, you want to pay for it? Sure, you can pay for it. Ah, finally, right? Vindication, redemption. You go to the restaurant. You guys are eating, having a nice meal. The waiter comes again and, and he says, and so you're like, ah, I get to pay. And as you're pulling out your wallet, he says in front of the waiter, by the way, remember when you got that job? Yeah, I know your boss. We were friends in high school. He was looking at your resume and a bunch of other people. I called him and I said, I need to use my favors with you. There's a candidate there. His name is John Duman. I want you to hire him because of me. Okay? And your boss hires you because you're a friend. And you never knew this. But he's telling you this now. And so then he says, I got you that job. Did you know that? Talk to your boss. He'll tell you. We're good friends from high school. He told me afterwards. There were other better candidates, but he hired you as a favor for me. You got that job because of me. Therefore, you're technically not paying for this meal because the job you got, I got you. So go ahead. How do you feel about this friend? What's in it for him? <laughs> And this friend shows up the next day with more groceries. What do you do with those groceries? Give them to the neighbor. <laughs> the nosy neighbor that's peeking over. But this time when he gives you the groceries, he pulls you out of your yard and begins to speak really loud and say, I've been taking my friend out to eat and I've been paying for every single one of his meals. All this food, I paid for this. And yesterday he made this big discovery. The job he has that has paid for that car and this house, really, it's all come from me. If it wasn't for me, he wouldn't have that job that has paid for this nice house. So technically, everything you have is because of me. How do you feel about that friend? Not so much of a friend. Do you know who I've just described? The human race? Someone said it out there. But... If we really think about it, if we're honest, John, all of us are on that same page of awkwardness. All of us are uncomfortable with someone else paying for our debts. And that's the struggle we all have with the gospel. We may talk about Jesus, but if Jesus were to truly show us what he's done for us, it would make us feel awkward and uncomfortable. Thank you very much, my brother. And we'll have to go out to eat sometime. <laughs> yeah, that was the strategy behind that story. Were you guys able to understand the story? Now, we didn't see it coming until the very end when the phrase, everything you have, you owe to me. Then the whole scenario changed, right? 
Because we do have a friend that he is the one responsible for every good and perfect gift we have. Yet we struggle with having someone pay for what we owe. Go to Matthew chapter 6 real quick. Matthew chapter 6. It is interesting the way Jesus taught us how to pray, what he said and what he did not say. When Jesus taught us how to pray, it is very significant how the words that he used. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12. Who would like to read that for us nice and loud? Matthew 6 verse 12. Someone would like to read it nice and loud for us? Thank you. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, Jesus doesn't say forgive us our sins. Jesus says forgive us our debts. For me, it's, I think, the the brilliant spirit-guided mind of Christ. In his prayer, he tucks in there an element that we are all uncomfortable with. Forgive us, forgive me, forgive us our debt. God knows that because of sin and how things have become in our world, everything we have, we think we've earned. We go to work. My job gives me, my boss gives me a paycheck. With that paycheck, I go to the bank and through the bank, I buy my food. I pay for my house. I pay for my car. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Jesus' most quoted book from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 18. It summarizes everything God has been saying so far. Deuteronomy 8, 18. Is everybody there? But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to do what? That's your best friend right there telling you the meal you're having at Olive Garden, the food you have in your refrigerator, the car you have outside your house, the house you have, the apartment you have, the clothes you have. Who has been the ultimate source of all of that? God. Now that may make us feel fuzzy and wuzzy on the surface, but in our hearts, we do get uncomfortable when someone continually says, I got this, I'm paying for this, I'm paying for this, I'm paying for this. It feels good a little bit at first because you're like, oh, that was a good meal. And my friend paid for it. But when your friend pays for every single meal, then it gets awkward, doesn't it? Then it becomes, like John said, I'm starting to question, especially if, if your friend begins to tell you to tell everybody who's paying for those meals. But that's what Jesus tells us to do. Give testimony of my faithfulness to you. Does he, does he not? But we don't. At the heart of much of what we struggle with in Christianity is that we sometimes think we transition from a merit-based religion to a faith-based religion when we actually haven't. We have transferred mentally, but not experientially. We are still coming to God in prayer, thinking about the good things we may have done during the week, making us feel subconsciously worthy to asking for things, which always backfires because then when you have a bad week and you don't feel worthy to pray, that's when... We don't, because we don't feel worthy to go to him. And that's why God warns us about attempting to live the life of faith with merit, merit in us. It will always sabotage our experience. And instead of making us feel grateful and gratitude and recognizing our great dependence on our best friend, it will make us suspicious and awkward with the dispensation of grace that God wants us to function under. So with this background and this prayer, I want us to turn to Matthew 18 for a bit. A very familiar story, parable that Jesus gave. We're going to examine this morning the the way we can kill merit so that we may live by faith. We're going to look at three things, three things that will empower us, will enable us, To not simply make the transition from merit-based living to faith-based living, but actually stay and sustain a faith-based lifestyle as a Christian. Those three things are forgiveness, love, and Sabbath. I'm going to say them again. The three things that the scriptures gives us by which I can continually 
make sure that I'm not transitioning back to merit because we can very easily, but rather stay in a faith-based relationship with God. The three things that the Bible gives us is forgiveness, love, and Sabbath. What are those three things, church? Forgiveness, love, and Sabbath. So we're going to look at forgiveness. Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? It's funny that when you ask a question and you give the answer, that's not really a question, is it? (laughs) 22. Jesus said to Peter, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 490 times. 23, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents, parenthesis. Because we don't know what that amount is, sometimes it escapes us what Jesus, the force of what Jesus is actually saying. One talent was the equivalent of 20 years worth of salaries. One talent was worth 20 years worth of income at that time. So if you do the math, how many years worth of income did this man owe the king? 10,000 times 20 is 200,000 years of labor. You can try to do overtime. (laughs) Will you ever catch up? Materially speaking, Jesus is telling in this parable that this servant owed the king 340 metric tons of silver. 340 metric tons of silver. When could one human being ever accrue that much wealth to pay back? What do you think Jesus is trying to do by saying this person owed 200 years worth of salaries? What is Jesus' emphasis at this point of the parable that he wants his hearers to kind of grasp This man will never be able to pay the debt. Verse 25, but since he did not have the means, no one does, to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. And of course, that would have just made a tiny dent in that debt. 26, so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have Patience. Doesn't ask for mercy. He says, have, can you paraphrase that for me? Give me some time. I'll pay you back the 200,000 years that I owe you. (laughs) How much patience could the the king say, okay, I'll, I'll give you till the day you die. Could that debt ever be paid? But yet this man thinks he can because he's asking for it. He knows the amount of debt he has. But instead of asking for mercy, he says, give me time. Have patience with me. Look at the words. Have patience with me and I will repay. How much? This is the outcome of merit living. We convince ourselves we can pay our debt. Will you say to God, I messed up today, but tomorrow I'll get it. Tomorrow I'm going to try harder. Tomorrow I'm going to work harder. Tomorrow I'm going to do more. But what Jesus is highlighting in this parable is my child. When will you ever be able to do more or sufficient to pay this debt? It's got to be a different equation here. 27, and the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and did what? forgave him the debt. But this is not the punchline of this parable. The punchline of the parable is the outcomes, the symptoms of merit-based living. 28, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. So that we know how much this is. One day was worth one denarii. A denarii was one day's worth of wages. So how many days worth of wages does this man owe the slave? A hundred. Now, that's not a small amount, but compared to 200,000 years, how does it measure up? 
and seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe me. 29. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have what? Mercy? Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray? Forgive us our as we. And when I prayed that prayer for many years, I thought it was tit for tat. I thought it was like, okay, yeah, you have some pretty big things to forgive me. I have some pretty big things to forgive me. What Jesus is trying to get us to process in our minds is that what we owe God will never compare to what other humans owe us. Therefore, what other humans may owe us will never exceed what I myself personally owe God. I sense God was willing to forgive me this much. I should be more than happy, capable, empowered to forgive this much. And yet that does not happen. We struggle forgiving other people. And that for me can become the red flag that is alerting me. There's merit in my life. Because if there's one thing that prevents me from appreciating what God has forgiven me is by saying, well, I did something to earn it. I changed my ways. I gave up this. I did that. I walked away from my job. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I built a synagogue. Whenever merit begins to creep into my life, I will immediately begin to find it difficult to forgive other people when they hurt. Is that making sense so far? I mean, we're talking about COVID, right? We have like loss of smell, loss of taste, fever, and all those things. Those are symptoms. That's not the problem. That's what's letting us know something else is lurking inside, is it not? When you have a hard time letting go of a grudge, I can be sure that there's merit lurking in my heart. Is that clear so far? So the three things that help us kill merit, the first one is, you remember it? Forgiveness. What was the first one? Forgiveness. The second one, love. And the third one, Sabbath. I need to experience forgiveness the way the Bible presents forgiveness. I need to accept the fact that I cannot work or earn God's forgiveness. That's a lot easier said than done. Every relationship that we have on planet earth is based on merit. I mean, John and I were pretty honest with each other. I would struggle with it just as much as he would with a friend that would pay for every meal every time we go out. Why can't I feel comfortable that every time we go to Olive Garden or pizzerias or whatever else place or salad restaurants, why can't I be okay with John paying for every single time? Why must there be after the third or fourth time for me to say, John, you know what? It's, it's my turn now. And that's what we do with God in our Christian life. We start out by grace, but then we feel like, well, I got to put in my little two cents in here, Lord, right? And whenever that be begins to happen, it is no longer a friendship. It is commerce. I've had friends like that. You pay this time, I pay the next time. And you could tell that our friendship was not all the way cooked because sometimes... I would be like, hey, you ordered fries. I didn't order fries last time. <laughs> right? And you're getting a milkshake too, brother? That's like $4 more than you paid for me last time. We laugh because why? We felt it. We've been there. And we want to do that with God. We want to say, because I give you the tithe, now you owe me a job. Because I'm paying you tithe, you owe me now my bank account and my house cannot go in foreclosure and all of these things. We deteriorate a relationship that is supposed to base what's the only foundation for any good relationship to be founded upon. Love. But we feel way more comfortable with merit. Merit gives us leverage and merit gives us a sense of control. Does it not? Because then if you owe me, then I can pocket that for a rainy day. 
no, we don't need merit with God because he sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. He sends his son on the grateful and the ungrateful. God will be good to you whether you tithe or not. We kind of twisted that teaching to mean something that the Bible never really intended to convey. Yes, there are blessings, but the blessing is not that your bank account will be immune from the economy. It's that your heart will be immune from greed and selfishness. That's the real blessing from tithing, that you learn to trust, that you learn to care for people in other parts of the world that don't have access to hospitals and educational systems that our tithe helps support to pay for teachers and staff in other parts of the world. This morning, all of us are being challenged to examine under what premise is my relationship with God based on? Is it secretly under the surface based on merit? Or am I growing more and more comfortable with a relationship of grace, a relationship in which I will never earn or deserve the good things that Jesus gives me. We're going to be going to the second part, which is love. The first one was forgiveness. The second one is love. Let us go to Luke chapter 7, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third gospel. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. I'm going to read from verse 36 all the way through 48. Luke 7, verse 46 says, Then one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a what? Now let me ask you, who was the one that invited Jesus to his house to eat? Also a sinner. <laughs> also a sinner. And in fact, when we are done with this narrative between this woman and the Pharisee, who was the bigger sinner? Yeah. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with a the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were not the Messiah, he's demoted Jesus. If he was just a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him for she is a what? Sinner. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So Simon says, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, how did the master, the creditor, deal with them? He forgave both freely. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. And now Jesus is going to gently rebuke Simon. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman, the sinner, that in your mind you were like, this woman is a sinner? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. What is Jesus trying to contrast here in Simon's mind? He just finished telling a parable about one person owing a lot, one person owing a little. And then the question is, who will love more? And then he highlights to Simon demonstrations of love that has happened just a few minutes within those, that time frame. And who is Jesus highlighting is showing and demonstrating more love? The sinner. Why? 
47. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. You know, I, I think I told you this already with my wife when we were dating. We're talking about our past experiences and kind of getting to know each other. And I shared with her a relationship that I had, this young lady that couldn't make up her mind between several of us. She had different guys interested. And she would tell me when I would get her to, you know, say, she, do you want to commit to this relationship or not? She would say to me, I like you a lot, but I don't like you like you. So after a few months, I thought we had gone past the like to like like and maybe even to love. So I pressed the issue of commitment in the relationship and she said, well, I love you, but I don't love you, love you. When I told that to Darlene, Darlene became incensed because she also was in that milieu and she had heard those expressions. She said, you know what, dear? We are such a bunch of liars because either you love or you don't. So this idea of Jesus saying, you love little is a very gentle rebuke of saying you actually do not love me. The reality is that, let me ask you this morning, be honest. How many of you have sinned very little? How many of you certainly, Bruce, you're head elder of this church. Certainly, bro, your record in heaven is like, what, three lines long? <laughs> Who this morning has sinned very little? Who this morning has sinned a lot? Do I love God a lot? That's what tells me whether I believe God has forgiven me a lot. Because Jesus says, to whom much is forgiven, that person loves much. That's why merit dies when I experience true forgiveness in my heart. When I begin to recognize that the debt that I owe God, I could never pay and I receive that forgiveness, it changes me. And it does expand, it does grow. My understanding of the forgiveness of God will expand as you get older and more mature as a Christian. You begin to see that you used to confess to God behaviors, now you begin to confess God motives. You begin to recognize it's not really what I did that was wrong, but why I did what I was wrong. The problem is me, Lord, it's not my hands, it's not my feet, it's me, it's inside. And you begin to see the cruddiness and the filth that is inside of you, you're like, oh God! Why would you even, I don't deserve you to hear this prayer. But I'm going to press the throne of grace, not based on my merits, but based on who you are and Jesus who is worthy. Those experiences begin to change and empower you to forgive the 100 denarii that other humans will do to you because you've experienced the forgiveness of the talents that you owe God. Is that making sense, church? And this has to be an ongoing experience, an ongoing understanding of revelation, an expansion of understanding how much God loves, has forgiven you, because in proportion to how much you see God has forgiven you, in that same proportion, what will grow? My love for Him. To whom much is forgiven, what happens? He also, or she also, loves much. But if I only see God forgiving me, we can always be sure that my list is shrinking when I begin to compare myself to others. If I justify myself by saying, well, I am not like this person or I am not like that person, you can be sure you are still in merit land. You need to transition to the gospel, to faith and grace. I want to be by faith. I want to experience God's grace. I want to be able to forgive because I begin to understand what I've been forgiven. I think I told you that for 25 years, I held a grudge against a pastor who messed up our lives, messed up my life with immigration. Why I struggle forgiving that pastor? Because I did not know what Jesus had forgiven me. And he wasn't trying to forgive that pastor that enabled me to forgive him. Is beginning to understand how much God had forgiven me that empowered me. Actually, by the time I met that pastor, because I had seen the enormity, the 340 metric tons of silver that God had forgiven me. When I looked at that pastor, we hugged, we prayed, and we wept together. 
Amen. Living by grace, living by faith is the only way we can experience true, genuine Christianity. Anything else is a sham, it's a lie, and it's self-deception. So we need to conclude because we're running out of time. John 14, 15. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 14, verse 15. We are talking about the three faith killer killers. <laughs> what kills merit? The first one was forgiveness. The second was, and the third one is, we've already seen how forgiveness kills merit. True forgiveness kills merit. I would never be able to pay back. So therefore, God does not owe me anything. That hymn says it, right? Jesus paid it all, all to him I. Does God owe me anything? Forgiveness allows me to sing that with conviction, with gratitude, with tears. God paid it all. And that was a lot. I owe it all. I owe my house. I owe every meal. Like the book Desire of Ages says, every loaf of bread is stamped with the cross of Christ. I begin to see that cross in everything that I owe. And my gratitude for him expands and grows. John 14, 15, if you love me, the New American, which tries to capture more the literalness of the Greek, puts it this way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's love that will lead you to be faithful. And that love will come in the measure with which you see how much God has forgiven you. It's not that God has made you healthy when you were sick. It's not that God has paid your bills when you didn't have money. Those things are nice, but that's not what will cause you to love him. Many people come to God when they are sick, when they have money problems, when the things are breaking down. But oftentimes, and I've done that, when God solved my problems, I said, see you later till the next emergency. But it was when I recognized how much God has forgiven me, that kept me close to him. That prevented me from leaving God. We're going to look at the last one. First one is forgiveness. Second one is love. The third one, the third blessing that God has given us in his word that kills merit is what? Do you remember? Let us go to Exodus chapter 20. It's in the commandment. Stop right in there. Hopefully with all of this context behind it, some words should stand out a bit more. Just like for me, when I began to understand this and I read the Lord's prayer, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Jesus didn't teach me. Forgive us our sins, but forgive us our debts. And notice Jesus didn't say, help me to pay my debt. Jesus says, forgive me my debt. Why? Because I recognize, when will I ever be able to pay it? Never. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall do what? Do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any. There's the gospel. Sabbath, if you are keeping the Sabbath, one of the core realizations about Sabbath, experiential things that you'll have about Sabbath, is that this is the one day where you cannot earn a thing. When I was a nurse, I punched in on Monday, I punched out Monday night, and four days straight, 12 hours. Two weeks after, I earned this little piece of paper with a whole bunch of numbers, right? But on Sabbath, God says, is the commandment about not working really is about you will not earn. You will not do something in exchange for something else. Because Sabbath is a weekly reset. Sabbath is a weekly reminder that if I'm going to live the life of faith, I cannot come to God expecting something because I think I've earned it. I think I've worked for it. Romans 6 verse 23 tells us that if I work, then I receive wages. I receive a salary. And the only salary that I deserve, if I work for my salvation on my own strength, the wages of sin is, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So let me ask you a question. What is, according to that verse, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. What's the gift of God? That's the answer that I gave when I was meditating on the sermon and the Holy Spirit asked me that question. 
What's the gift of God according to Romans 6.23? It's not eternal life. It's Jesus. Because the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. God does not give you eternal life. God gave you his son. First John tells us that he who has the son has the life. And no one has the son when they come to God with their own merits, with their own worthiness. That's why Jesus could turn around and look at Israel and with a broken heart say, how I wish my people, centurion, would have a smidgen of the faith you have in me today. What keeps them unworthy of me is not their sins, is their sense that they deserve my blessings, that they've earned them. But you, centurion, you get the gospel. I am not worthy for you to come to me, Lord. I am not worthy to go to you. But because I trust your character and your power, say the word, my servant will be healed. It is when you feel least worthy that you are most ready to experience faith in your life. It is when you begin to sense your unworthiness that the deceptions of Satan are beginning to break holes from your mind. If you're still functioning on because I keep Sabbath, God will give me a job. You are missing the entire point of Sabbath. Sabbath is a weekly reminder that when it comes to God, we can expect good things because Jesus is worthy and that's it. And that gives me security, peace, consistency. There's nothing I can do to earn the love of God. The grace and his salvation. We're going to look at one last passage. It's in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 23 and verse 34. Luke chapter 23 and verse 24. Right before Jesus dies and rests on the Sabbath in an identical manner as in Genesis, when God finishes all creation, he looks and sees that all things were very good and he rests on the Sabbath. Right before Jesus dies, before Sabbath, he speaks these words. Luke 23, 34. But Jesus was saying, Father, do what? What was the only way that the Father would be able to forgive those Roman soldiers, the Pharisees, the priests, the disciples, the human race? What was the only way that the Father could answer that prayer of Jesus? By what he was willing to do at that moment. Father, forgive them. Because they will yield. Some will yield to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit when they see my sacrifice and they will grow accustomed to me as their best friend saying, I got this meal and the next one and I got your mortgage and I got your house and I got all those things. In fact, I got your eternal life. I've forgiven your sins. I've forgiven that debt that you could never pay. The cross is where we experience the genesis of our love for God, the beginning of our love for God. Because the first thing that we will experience at the cross is the enormous gift of God's forgiveness. If God's forgiveness this morning, nothing to me, it's not that I'm hopeless, it's that I need to start investing. I do need to behold. I need to invest time meditating. I do need to spend time in the word of God and asking the Lord, when I ask you to forgive me, Lord, Sometimes it feels like I'm asking you for a sandwich. With the same intensity and desperation as if I was asking you to help me paint my house or find my car keys. Sometimes we pray with more intensity to find the car keys than with the gratitude due for the forgiveness that God has given us in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit has much work to do in my heart. How about yours? I begin to realize that I am finding myself more often like Simon and less like Mary. And I don't want to stay like Simon. I want to have a heart like Mary that publicly confesses my gratitude to the Lord. And that I begin to allow the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to kill merit, which is just a synonym for pride. 
and recognize and be okay with God paying all my debts. That way I can sing with sincerity. Jesus, for me, paid it all. So as far as I'm concerned, all to him, I owe. Anyone else this morning want to sing that hymn as a prayer? Father in heaven, we have gone through a brief study that convicts me and reconvicts me and touches me deeply every time I read the story of Mary weeping. I remember, Lord, those first nights of my conversion. I had never seen how wicked I was inside. I had never seen how cruel and manipulative I had been to my parents. No sermon could have ever spoken to my heart with the same clarity and penetrating truth as you did to me that night. And you were not trying to make me feel bad. You were trying to help me to see the honest truth as to what is inside of me. I still need that, Lord. Psalms 139.23 says, Search me and try me. Know my thoughts, know my heart, and see if there be any wicked way in there. And lead us in the way everlasting. I pray that for me and my church this morning, Lord. Search our hearts. Do not let us be deceived. The merit is lingering there. You haven't allowed us to recognize. If I'm having a difficult time forgiving, if I'm holding on to grudges, if there's biting and suspicion in my heart, Lord, there's very likely that there's merit in my heart. Father, I pray that you teach us how to crucify it every time, how to die to self, how to kill that merit and lean fully on your grace. Teach us, Lord, by your spirit and your word that what we have learned this morning it will not just be in our heads, but in our hearts. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for his words. Thank you for answering his prayer by forgiving each of us. We love you. We want to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen, Lord. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.